something I really have been been wanting to ask you about. You, you make this um, the statement that uh, Polanyi's approach helped you at least make sense of presuppositionalism, mm-hmm. um, and that the presuppositions are like like tools, um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it helps us in, in servant thinking. Can you can you help flesh that out a little bit more? How does how does Polanyi uh, help us make sense of presuppositions? Oh, and, and... that's good, and it was so key for me. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedecase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life with experts in those fields. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. On today's very special episode, I have with me Dr. Esther Lightcap Meek, and uh, we're going to be talking about some of her work, including uh, contact with reality and uh, loving to know, which... Uh, which is her take on a uh, her her work on an a covenantal epistemology following the work of uh, Michael Pol Polian Polanyi Polanyi Polanyi. Um, I'll let her uh, pronounce that for us. But uh, Michael Polanyi is this awesome thinker who is usually known for tacit knowledge, but uh, also has a lot to say about realism and uh, our contact with reality. So I'm really excited to jump in on that. Before we get going here, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for making this pod- this podcast possible. Um, you guys are so awesome and, and growing, and there's more of you that, that continue to become patrons. I really appreciate the community that's happening over there. If you like this podcast and you want to support it, you want to see me continue to do this stuff, then please consider becoming a Patreon patron. Uh, another way that you can support the podcast is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give me a like, subscribe, smash the the like button, uh, turn on the notification bell, all that good stuff. Um, if you like the podcast, please like the podcast. Please let me know uh, and help me stick around. So without further ado, let's jump in on Michael Polanyi. Polanyi and uh, tacit knowledge and realism and covenantal epistemology with Dr. Esther Meek. Dr. Meek, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, it's great to get to know you, Parker, and <laughs> thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, definitely. I have I've, um, I think I first came upon your work reading uh, John Frame's Festschrift, and um, you had an essay in there on servant thinking. And uh, I think you probably introduced me to Michael Pol- Polanyi, uh, one more time, actually. Can you can you just say it for us? Yeah, you're doing fine. <laughs> what you need is confidence. <laughs> okay. So Polanyi, uh, I t- tend to say Polanyi. Okay. There, you know, there are other Polanyi. Let's say Polanyi too. So. Okay. That's what Perfect. my default. Is. Yeah. Well, so, so anyway, me a question besides how to pronounce his name? I can't remember. Oh, not yet, not yet. But I, I was uh, before we jump in on on your your work and Polanyi, um, Polanyi. Um, I was interested in finding out like, how how did you get into philosophy and theology yourself, and then maybe like how did you come to focus on epistemology? Oh well, uh, that can all be answered in one little story, which is hmm. kind of the story of my life. But I, you know, I seem to have been born a skeptic. So even though I was born into a Bible-believing home and and uh, still am Bible-believing, <laughs> you know, it, I had questions that, um, you know, at the at age thirteen I thought were sin, hmm. but uh, later came to decide they were epistemological when once I found out what they were because they were how do I know yeah. God exists and then also how do I know there's a world outside my mind? So I was um, you mentioned contact with reality. You know, I, it's it's all about my my uh, 
it's like my whole story has been about my getting over my skepticism hmm. with regard to what was beyond me. Like, as if I, you know, it, it's really so arrogant to think, <laughs> you know, that it's only what's in your head that's real. <laughs> but yeah. I'm me, welcome to modernity. <laughs> that's right. Infection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I it that, that was age 13. When I was uh, in high school, I uh, read Francis Schaeffer's The God Who Is There. And that was when I started to get the idea of what philosophy was. Okay. And uh, then it, I didn't know you could study it. So um, when I found that out, which was between my freshman and sophomore year, it took me 12 hours to change my entire course of, you know, unfolding my studies to transfer, tra change majors to study with this man whose reputation I was hearing about, who was a philosopher. And it, it seemed obvious to me that that's what I had to do. And it also seemed obvious to me that I did, I was not smart enough, but mm. I was morally obligated because mm. these were the most important things. I just, I had to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't believe in a world outside your head, what are you going <laughs> to do? <laughs> yeah. That's really like the, the main question. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's funny that, that the moral obligation was there so early on, because that is something that you, you develop in your uh, covenantal epistemology that yeah. there, we have, we have duties to know certain things and we have duties to think God's thoughts after him. Um, well, so how'd you come to study with, with uh, John Frame then? Well, that philosopher whose reputation I was getting sung the praises of by his student uh, was all uh, he was teaching at Cedarville College, but he was also uh, completing graduate work at Westminster Seminary. Mm. So all my undergraduate history of philosophy that I had with him came with a Vantillian okay. flavor. And so after that degree, I I got a master's in humanities like an interdisciplinary study uh, interdisciplinary studies which i also loved from reading francis schaefer mm -hmm. and and then i you know were was trying to decide whether to go on in philosophy or theology and i actually wrote i mean back in the day when you wrote letters to john frame and asked his recommendation and well obviously he recommended that i do theology first and come study with him yep. so I wanted to get a little more from the horse's mouth because I, I was not raised in a reformational uh, tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I was hearing made very deep sense of what I, well, even a, a deeper sense than what I knew. I had been in a dispensationalist uh, framework, which I knew pretty well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but this uh, kind of larger grasp, profounder grasp of, of, the great truths of scripture, you mm. know, uh, and, and that there would be an integration between those and, and uh, philosophical claims that that's what I pursued. And, you know, as I got into the Vantillian flow, you know, uh, for Vantill, you can hardly separate theology, apologetics and epistemology. They're just like one thing. Right. And um, so I guess I inhaled that. And I've never really thought of myself as doing theology, hmm. uh, being in a conservative, ha having been in conservative uh, uh, religious forms. Uh, women are are not supposed to 
open their mouths. That was mm-hmm. my sense. So, uh, but certainly we're all allowed to be philosophers. So <laughs> that's fantastic. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, as you know, uh, and I honor you for having read those books, <laughs> loving to know and, and contact with reality. I, you know, I, there's these rich themes in scripture. I don't think of myself as doing theology, but to tap a, a profound idea like the ultimate interpersonhood of the universe, it's like, mm. why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. <laughs> so I I don't think I ever leave philosophy to become theological. Mm. Okay. I, I don't know the terms well enough, I guess, to be sure, but I, I feel like I, I, I call uh themes that i know to be true to scripture and absolutely profound mm-hmm. to um creatively I, I think i'm a creative philosopher to build to use them as motifs in my own work yeah i i think you're right um and i i, I really like in uh, loving to know you you take up various uh other thinkers and then you you say like a conversation with Mike Williams, but then you, you weave it in, you, 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 you reveal their philosophy and, and what they're getting at. And then you weave it into your, uh, your whole project, which is a covenantal epistemology, which is awesome. It's so cool. It's a way to honor them and expose them. Some of the, some of these guys I, had, I hadn't heard of at all, but now I'm, I'm more interested in them because I see how you're using their philosophy to, you know, bring us uh, deeper in and, and closer up. Um, you're making me so happy. Thank you so much for saying <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm I'm a fan. Um, I'm I'm particularly interested in in Polanyi, um, because he's such a fascinating figure, uh, and and he's onto such cool stuff at such a cool time in philosophy that he was kind of like a rebel, kind of a bad boy, yeah. uh, the way I think of him. How <laughs> how do you how do you get interested in him? How do you like discover him and his work? Uh, well, I got to dissertation stage, and this was at Temple in Philadelphia, which was my home. Mm-hmm. And um, by that point, I was in a Presbyterian church, and uh, some young man at church who I believe had heard about Michael Polanyi, having uh, uh, this young man had heard about him when he visited when the young man visited Labrie. So oh, wow. he heard it from Francis Schaeffer. Huh. And I know from other Francis Schaeffer types that uh, Schaeffer was aware of Polanyi's work. So anyway, this young man uh, b- let me borrow his copy of Personal Knowledge. And I was looking for a dissertation topic that would allow me to be as broad as possible because I figured that my calling, if I had one, was to help people who had never had philosophy get their feet wet, especially if they were believers, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted, I always thought and always wanted to be general. I never wanted to get specific. Mm. And I loved how, when you looked at the secondary interaction with Polanyi's work, it was from every field. It was so interdisciplinary. And that actually is um, one of several reasons why he's not that well known, because it's not as if, you include Polanyi in a, in a corpus in, say, economics as over against philosophy, as over against science. So, right. so he, in that way, he has um, a bit fallen through the cracks. Another is, you're right, he was challenging the 
whole framework of philosophy even to this day mm-hmm. you know so so they so he was uh easily dismissed as crazy <laughs> and uh then the other is he had this way because he was so so brilliant of uh not standing on ceremony with regard to credentials, but walking into another field and coming right. up with great ideas and, and putting them forth, you know, yeah. which doesn't exactly endear you. <laughs> <laughs> field, you know? Playing in someone else's sandbox and telling them what to do. Right. Yeah. Well, so that, he's so interesting because because I believe he started as a, as a scientist and then kind of moved into like philosophy of science type stuff, but then turned econom- uh, economist and then turned just pure epistemology and epistemologist. Does that sound right? Sort of pretty well. Um, He was a brilliant premier scientist, scientific discoverer in Mm -hmm. conversation with Einstein and everybody else at the beginning of the 20th century. And in a hugely, he was in physical chemistry and he's credited with over 30 discoveries Wow. And and they say if he had stayed in science, he would have gotten the Nobel Prize. He but he left it to do philosophy <laughs> to save science. But his son got a Nobel Prize, as did other people from his lab, wow. which was significant. So not every lab in the world it is so concentrated with creative expert excellence that you would have multiple Nobel Prize winners. But his did. <laughs> That's amazing. But again, does that's not exactly a kind of a plebeian everybody could make a discovery sort of an approach to science, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. It tends to be elitist. Yeah. You know. Which, yeah. you know, there's a whole bunch of other people that doesn't <laughs> fly for, you know. Right. So, but then he um because he was of uh Jewish heritage and a Hungarian, uh he was chased out of one country after another mm. in some ways and and so uh he left uh germany just you know under cover of darkness just after oh. hitler became chancellor and uh managed to get away to manchester in england who where they you know they already wanted him to come and uh, he didn't want to go because it wasn't as pretty as germany <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he went and and then when he got to Britain, he found Britain. This would have been like 1930s that England was all enthralled with this idea, this communist idea of of socialized science so that the mm. government plans what scientists will discover. And Pilate just thought that's ridiculous. You've got to have liberty. Yeah. So so uh, you have you have to have, you know, kind of like a liberty of conscience for a scientist. And um, so that's what got him thinking about the foundations of science. Okay. And so you can, a lot of my colleagues in the Polani Society would argue that his epistemological proposals really came in that context to, to uh, combat this, you know, heady idea of uh, socialized science. Wow. That's amazing. That's, it's really cool to step back and see, it's really, it really, it's really hard for him. He had to leave his, his, you know, mother country, uh, you know, being persecuted. That's horrible and awful. And even still you see amazing stuff come from it. Cause he was under this pressure. Cause he was in a new environment where they're doing, they're treating science in a, in a bad way that he was able to think differently and come up with new things. 
Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There was something else I was going to say. Oh, gee. Philosophers, we got we got to turn oh, to. The yeah. other thing is the the term philosophy of science. When when I've taught a philosophy of science course with a philosophy of science book, mm-hmm. you know, like the standard story of yeah. philosophy of science, he's nowhere in there. Okay. And and he didn't see himself as doing his philosophy of science. Hmm. Uh, what he saw himself doing was uh, saving science. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because he thought he thought, you know, if you don't if you have this defective idea of what knowledge is, no scientific discovery could ever happen. Right. But it does. So you need a different epistemology that shows what actually goes on with discovery. And see, the point is, if you take knowledge to be explicit information, Mm -hmm. how do you make a discovery? I mean, it's the old Mano problem. Yeah, Mano paradox. Yeah. Right. So either you know it or you don't. (laughs) (laughs) If you know it, you don't need to discover it. If you don't know it, you can't begin. So it's that, that, that he he felt, you know, look, I'm my job is discovery. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And for discovery, I gotta have freedom. (laughs) And I've got to have the freedom to accredit unspecifiable hunches that I have to rely on because I don't have anything else. So really what the scientist and any learner, really any discoverer needs to do is scrabble subsidiarily with these, these clues and trust yourself to things that you only half understand. It's very comforting actually to be, to, to have this approach and be a student or a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I found it very freeing as, as both for my students and for myself. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and I, I, that you've helped me understand um, why he went the way he went with his epistemology and, and because of his concern from, from science, um, you you mentioned in uh, in one of them. I, I read both of them uh, recently. So that, uh, both contact with reality and loving to know. So they're both uh, you need jumbled. A prize. Thank you so much. <laughs> you can get a double prize. Yeah, definitely. Well, hopefully the the audience will jump in too because uh, mm-hmm. and, and pick up these books because they're they're really great and um, I, I've definitely definitely uh, benefited from reading them. But you 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 mentioned that Pol- uh, Polanyi he says that we ought to focus not on explanation, but on discovery. Um, And and then he brings that into epistemology. And he says that um, epistemology shouldn't focus just on the items of knowledge, the things that we already have. Don't, don't spend all your time trying to account for knowledge that we already have um, by offering, you know, rational justification, but um, worry about work on uh, accounting for acts of coming to know discoveries coming to know. Um, So that, I take it that that's where the tacit knowledge comes in. Um, you, you you mentioned these like unspecifiable hunches. That's that's tacit knowledge, right? That's like knowledge that it's not explicit. Is it implicit, or is it is tacit the the, the right nomenclature to use? There? Well, tacit means silent, as okay. opposed to explicit, which is verbalized. Okay. Now, Marjorie Green, who was uh, the philosopher, premier philosopher, who really helped him with his work. Mm-hmm. and is a an incredible commentator on him uh she says what you got to get to get philosoph- get polani is not tacit and explicit 
Okay. But subsidiary and focal. Yeah. And in particular, you've got to see that any act of coming to know is a, a structure of subsidiary focal integration. So it's not like there's some kind of knowledge that's separated. <laughs> it's yeah. not like there's subsidiary knowledge over here and, and mm-hmm. focal knowledge over here. No, it's this from to structure. So always you're relying on clues to focus on or integrate to a pattern. And yeah. when people say tacit and explicit knowledge, and they tend not to get that structure. And then they tend to think, okay, well, what, what Polanyi was saying is, uh, you can't manage to get all your knowledge to be explicit. So there's a, there's always going to be this tacit remainder. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, that's just, and the thing about subsidiary focal knowledge is uh, uh, the subsidiary, you could articulate. It's just that you can't indwell it at the same time that you articulate it. Huh. So there's a, a formula for keeping your balance on a bike. <laughs> But the four-year-old doesn't know that. Right. <laughs> I mean, his body knows it. His body lives it out. Okay. Um, but so a good teacher, for example, or any teacher, a coach, a piano teacher. I mean, this so goes with sports and, and yeah. music and artistry. Uh, what they What you have to do as a teacher is utter sentences that are more like maxims rather than information because Hmm. a teacher like a coach has to utter a sentence that gets your body to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and then you see, it's not, even if they do give you information, it's not your memorizing the information that's going to get you to the insight. You Hmm. somehow you've got to climb into it subsidiarily. So when my, my father taught me to ride a bike, you know, he put me on a bike and pushed me. <laughs> and he yelled, balance. Did I say I was a skeptic? I mean, I'm going <laughs> down that hill thinking, what does the word balance even mean? And how would I even know? Yeah. But somehow, yeah. he I'm sure he was confident by the time I got to the yeah. bottom of the hill, I didn't figure it out. My dad did the same thing with my sister. Um, <laughs> yeah, same thing. And it went a hill and she it took one, just one down and she had it and she knew how to ride a bike. He didn't do it with me. I was I didn't want that. So we we did other methods. But well, so the the subsidiary uh, focal integration um that's from this point A to point B um that it kind of just clicked for me that that's um your three dimensions of knowing the world the lived body and the directions in the normative world. I see. I think I see how that fits more. Where you have this lived body and that's that's you riding the bike, but you didn't know the normative uh, formula for how someone should balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder where the maybe where the world comes in. Is that is that like you yeah. on the bike and yeah? And actually, if I uh, might ask you to read yet another book, mm-hmm. Longing to Know has the yeah. most extended unfolding of subsidiary focal integration. Okay, with the with the by far more illustrations. Okay, it's awesome. like over the top. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> But in longing to know, that's where I start talking about three sectors of clues. And those are my framing triad. Yeah. So that's my frame component. And so literally John frame taught me to find if, if there's a situational and an existential, there's got to be a normative. Yeah. So, and what I say is those are three sectors of clues. So me 
come trying to ride the bike, you know, at the top of the hill, point A, mm -hmm. nothing working out for me. Like, so his yelling balance, that bike, I was sure nobody could keep a, keep balance on two points. I mean, I, that contraption was opaque to me and yeah. my body might as well have been like we say all thumbs i mean it, it, so even my own body uh, if i focus on it which i was doing at the beginning was meaningless mm. and everything was all disconnected yeah. so once you get to uh get going on the performance of keeping your balance on a bike all those come together as clues and they kind of merge together with your body mm -hmm. so that when i taught my children to ride a bike i yelled balance <laughs> <laughs> did it work for them as well <laughs> eventually <laughs> yeah, great that's awesome well, i don't yeah. remember too much except i can i clearly can see one little girl you know turning the the handlebars too sharply and falling off and i knew she was gonna do it she was the one when i taught her to drive the car that the first thing she did in the high school parking lot was look at her foot on the accelerator pedal and i about jumped out the window <laughs> <laughs> so she was a too, little too heavy on the bodily focal <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's hilarious because yeah the 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 triads are so deep in my brain I, i've read most everything uh frame has written and it's just so deep and even when i try not to see it it pops up and go, all right well all right i'm missing a i'm missing a perspective here let's see well, and you see you again in longing to know that book is me trying to justify my own christianity to myself mm. okay and and it's a book for people considering christianity who have epistemic issues like i did hmm. and so when i and i'm working with the magic eye 3d picture yeah. a lot in there and, you know, John Frame set me looking for the normative. Well, it's the directions. Mm -hmm. So when you first come to a magic eye, you don't even know what it is. And you, you're not, maybe not even sure that it's a game, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, so it, you heavily rely on the directions, uh, even though you can't understand them at that point. Yeah. So that I was trying to, to, in order to justify my own Christianity to myself, I, it seemed to me that I needed to show that this crazy thing that Christians believe that it, you uh, read the Bible to find out about God hmm. and, and, and th that that crazy thing is not somehow different from every other ordinary act of knowing. Yeah. And so that, that's how I got to it. So the clues and the directions, you've got the direction in the, in the magic eye you know, and, and you can't even have knowing without authoritative guides. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. I, one time I taught this at the seminary level and there was a guy on a second career who was retired. Um, uh, what would it be? X, uh, X 15 fighter pilot. Wow. <laughs> and he said, tell them, tell them <laughs> you're right. There's no way you can fly to fly a fighter jet. If you didn't have an authoritative guide, there's wow. no way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that triad, it, it's so helpful. And I, I found it in your work. I've also found it in, um, in Kevin Van Hoos's work, who I studied with at, at uh, Ted's, who is another student of, of frame. And, um, and you even mentioned uh, this word triangulating in, in longing to, uh, oh, in loving to know. I invented it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, <laughs> it's not what it means. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. 
Um, but but the the role of of another person in in coming to know uh, something, and I I found that in uh, this philosopher Donald Davidson, and he's got a secular theory, and and um, I think he accidentally makes an argument for God, uh, God's existence from triangulating uh, from a concept acquisition. Um, you you taught your daughter. Um, the concept of bike, you know, by, by looking at her and triangulating with her with the word and, and she formed the concept over time, but someone taught you and someone taught your parent and someone all the way back yeah. to infinite regress or to a divine mind that started things or to a process of um, emergence out of um, evolutionary theory or something. So I, I thought that was really cool. And and everyone's kind of you and Van Hooser and uh, Frame and and me taking this on as well are all kind of like feeling around the same thing that there's this need for there's this need for norms and there's also this need for another person to yeah. share those norms with you i thought that was yeah. so cool and it's it represents like god made us for other people god made us for uh, interaction with himself as well there's an interpersonal dimension that you can't yeah. uh avoid i wrote, once wrote and i've said this repeatedly um that being a mom or a you know a parent of a very small child is the most philosophical job yeah. because you're you're naming the world to the child and the child doesn't even see the world until you start to name it yeah totally that's totally right yeah and like you you're teaching them the concept of table and then they can pick that out and they realize table is not just that thing in the dining room but it's also at McDonald's it's yes. also over here and the different shapes and colors yeah, it's really, really cool. My daughters would call everything flying in the air that was mechanical, would call it a, I guess, I guess she called it an airplane. So and yeah. we were living in South Louisiana at the, at the time, there were a whole lot of helicopters. <laughs> and one day I said to her, well, a helicopter goes wop, wop, wop. Well, she always had the distinction after that, you know, uh, you could accurately. <laughs> so cool. I love that. Yeah, it is, it's so cool. Yeah. Um, well, so that, that kind of brings me to um, something I really have been, been wanting to ask you about. You, you make this um, the statement that uh, Polanyi's approach helped you at least make sense of presuppositionalism mm. um, and that the presuppositions are like like tools um, mm -hmm. and, it, and it helps us in, in servant thinking. Can you can you help flesh that out a little bit more? How does how does Polanyi uh, help us make sense of presuppositions? Oh, and, and that's good. And it was so key for me. Because I really met Frame's work and Polanyi's work about the same time. Mm. And, you know, when I, when I was, and, you know, as I told you my story, I'm kind of coming into a reformational, particularly Vantillian uh, shaping of my Christianity at that point. And, and uh, presuppositionalism seemed to be, me to be a no brainer. It just seemed that it's always seemed to me that, you know, you look at premises and a conclusion and there's deeper premises, <laughs> Yeah. you know, and it's like the main act is way down. That's one of the reasons I, I felt like philosophy was so hmm. obvious that I had to do, but at the same time, you know, if some, and lots, this has been the approach of so many people to say, well, everybody's got a worldview you know, and worldviews are, you know, fundamental belief commitments that shape everything about the way that you see the world. I've taught that myself at 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 uh, Geneva. Mm -hmm. um, but but that doesn't exactly help you adjudicate, right. <laughs> you know, or figure out which ones you're supposed to take to be yours, you know. Right. 
And the, I, I think what I felt was to say that rendered, brought into my faith an arbitrariness that was worse. Yeah. And, and that arbitrariness was bothered me. Mm-hmm. Well, so then when I read that Polanyi said, well, a theoretical framework works like a tool, which means mm-hmm. you subsidiarily indwell it. I think it's tacit dimension. He says this in um, that made me realize why it feels arbitrary, arbitrary because it is arbitrary to temporarily revert to fixate on what you're supposed to indwell. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in other yeah. words, what you as a Christian believer, you want to wear the Bible, <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, if you memorize it, which I, I, you know, I think it's good to memorize. It's because you want to memorize it. So you wear it so that then reality comes to you that way. But mm-hmm. it's not so you can kind of have this, you know, you you pick this information that's going to be your kind of arbitrary starting point. Yeah. That's so un un uh, comfortable as a as a religion, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. It just does does um going back to the the world, the live body and the the directions. So I, I would think of it as like the the directions are are the abstract. Um they don't have to be abstract, but it's the rules, it's the the norms. Um and then the world will allow you to wear those presuppositions or not. So if you start with like a a false set of presuppositions, the world's going to smack you in the face and you're not going to be able to live those accurately. Yeah. Does that sound right? I think so. I, I There's uh, in longing to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe that's not the right place. There's, there's this great quote from a documentary about New York city. And then the guy was talking about the trash and he was like a real, you know, kind of understated sort of guy. And I remember him saying sooner or later, the trash will win. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is in the chapter called Getting It Wrong. Okay. And that was actually one thing that really appealed to me about Polanyan epistemology, this subsidiary focal integration. Your subsidiaries, uh, it's not like you've just baptized them as incorrigible. Yeah. You can indwell mistaken subsidiaries. Hmm. And, you, you know, so you can, uh, and you can get that, you can get them half right and get them half wrong. I actually think the defective epistemic default that I talk about in loving to know mm-hmm. is mistaken subsidiaries. It's it if it's my body that learned Cartesianism and mm-hmm. became an object. Yeah. And so it's my body that's got to unlearn it, mm-hmm. which is why I do epistemological therapy. Yeah. So somehow, you know, subsidiaries you can get them part right and get them part wrong you can you can train them so you can become become one of these bike riders that does these you know mogul things you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know do the tour de france or whatever so it's trainable uh and uh sometimes expert trainers and trainees have to go back to square one and retrain yeah so, you know, figure skaters talking about getting a new coach and it taking two years to to relearn. Hmm. 
some things, you know? So I guess yeah. I've, I've lost the train of thought. So I'll bring well, me. The, yeah, this is, this is, um, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you talk so much about uh, physical aspects because uh, I, I wrestled in college and uh, that's, that's what kind of st- struck me at first when I was, when I was reading your work because, and, and gaining the idea of tacit knowledge and moving from point A to point B, because there are some really good wrestlers out there who make terrible coaches and sometimes yeah. some some of them who you, you've, they've never had to work with kids before. Uh, when you see them, some our, a lot of our coaches would make us work the kids club at the college too. Just kind of a rotation. Um, mm-hmm. It's good for us, but it's also good for the program for them to have free labor from us. But we're on scholarship anyways. So you see someone come through. They've been coached their whole life. They know how to wrestle really well. But you try to see them or you see them try to teach a, a child and they just can't do it. And there's like this mental break at first. And then after that, sometimes the shock, just the shock of it will make someone want to learn more. And they'll be like, I don't know how to teach this. And they become really good coaches after that. Sometimes not, but. Yep, that's right. I worked with a baseball player. Well, no, he, I guess he was a baseball teacher who who was a huge skeptic. Uh, And like at the point that he became a believer, he was both called to ministry and his doubts just started to strangle him. Wow. So at the point that I met him, he was playing video games rather than doing his seminary homework. Huh. But on the uh, I also learned about him that he charged sixty dollars an hour to teach students to teach kids to bat. Yep. He said to me, "I'm a better teacher than George Brett." Hmm. And I said, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like confidence to me." Yeah. <laughs> I said. How do you know? And he said, because I've read George Brett's book and he doesn't know what he himself is doing right. Hmm. Wow. To your point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it makes sense with, um, to me and and probably to a lot of my listeners, it makes sense when you get into like a really physical discipline, like wrestling, like baseball, like any kind of sport. When it comes to, when it comes to just thinking, uh, uh, doing like philosophy in the armchair, uh, I could see people being more skeptical of that and saying, well, what do you need your body for? Um, not, not saying, uh, you know, we are just a brain on a stick or anything like that, but when it, you know, when it, when it comes to, um, when it, when it comes to doing philosophy in the armchair, uh, how, how do we, how does the epistemological therapy, uh, how does that work? Well, that's a fabulous question. Well, I would say to say, what does my body matters is a, a profoundly philosophical claim. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I perhaps one ought to use the air armchair to start thinking about that one, you yeah. know, and, and then I, you know, I think uh, I, I, here's how I, one of the ways I've expressed it over my time as a teacher, and that is if I lecture, you know, we, some people tend to say, oh, well, discussions are way more embodied or you know, interactive or, or, you know, and boo lectures, yay, yay discussion. (laughs) Well, what I said is I wear my lecture. There's that wearing idea. It's like, and I literally am inviting my students into my body because it's only as you get into my body that you can figure out what I'm thinking. Hmm. So, so that's one of the, and I think that's important for philosophical writing too, but it's, it, it's important. It's important for philosophical uh, teaching. Hmm. And, and, you know, 
if you take the thesis of loving to know, the most important, and it's this isn't an, a, a component so much as the fabric of the whole thing yeah. of knowing is love. Hmm. So, uh, you know, get over some I- goofy idea of knowledge as information, yeah. right? And and see that it is your desire <laughs> for the real. Yeah. And, and okay, yes, you can sit in your chair, me and my my um, desk chair here. And and long and long for the real, but that doesn't mean that that longing is um, cere- merely cerebral. Yeah. And I, you know, actually, it's interesting. It's it, and any help you can give me in this would be welcome. Sure. But you know, if you start like, like when I wrote Little Manual, which is a, kind of the little skinny. Uh, alternative to loving to know, but so much is left out, obviously. But I also tried to start with love. Hmm. And I think to myself, I'm not sure little manual works that well, because I think you've got to do Polanyan subsidiary focal integration first before you start talking about love, because love is pedal language. You know what I mean with my daisy of dichotomies? Yeah. In loving to know, we think, yay, knowledge, boo, emotions, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And that means love has an, an epistemic um, gravitas to mm-hmm. it, you know? So you have to dispel the daisy. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I, I don't know a better way to do it than to teach somebody subsidiary focal integration and get them to think about riding their bike. <laughs> And and then, you know, then they're ready for love to be something other than pedal language. But what it is, I mean, what Polanyi said about commitment in personal knowledge, he called it our manner of disposing ourselves toward the world. Well, that's love language. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I, I really like that. I, I, I wonder, I'm trying to think of like the most abstract thing and it's, it's probably either philosophy or like mathematics, like certain types of mathematics where it's just sheer armchair, sheer like equations. But even then, like you're doing that for a reason and you're doing that because you, hopefully you're doing that because you want to get closer to reality. You want to get closer to, to the truth, to, to what's going on. And the physicists are at your door, hoping that you're coming up with something to help out their theories. Um, because you do think that that philosophy maps onto reality in an important way. So even even in the most cerebral uh, abstract, there's still that love. And it's not the gushy, woo-woo, right. weird love. It's, yeah, that's, that's really great. I think it's a twinkle in the eye. Okay. You know, I've told my students, you, you want to study with a teacher with a twinkle in their eye about, yeah. you know, the human genome process and also about you, their student. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That's a good point. So with, in the, with the, you find someone with a twinkle in the eye and, and when you find someone like that, it's amazing. Cause that's the person you want to study with. Right. But, um, sometimes when you ask them, you're like, why, why the genome or why, uh, you know, biochemistry or something. And a lot of times they're like, because do you know what this is? If you know what this is, then you don't even have to ask me that. And it's like, okay, but there are other really dry professors. <laughs> yeah. Is, um, is the twinkle in the eye, bringing it back to like to tacit knowledge and stuff is that something that can be made explicit you think or that that type of loving uh loving your probably it's probably what god made you to do and that's probably why you like it so much um but is is that 
are you able to express that you think are you married yeah okay so if i ask you why you love your wife i bet you'd say a million things and still feel like you hadn't gotten to the heart of it yeah and i i'm even now i'm hesitant because I have a lot of different philosophy in my head too. And thinking like, if I say I love her for this reason, then I love her for that and not for who she is. And, but it, it's, it's like, yeah, it is, it is pretty inexplicable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, she better not put up with a list of items. Right. <laughs> right. Cause as soon as that list shrinks or something, it's like, what do I love her less? Like, no, I better not. Actually subsidiary focal integration helps here. Okay. Because do you, do you know the, um, well, that that I'm not going to say that. What you're doing, like like if you introduce me to your wife, mm-hmm. and you want me to know how awesome she is, I mean, yeah. I do this with introducing any of my friends. Mm-hmm. I start listing things that I think are amazingly cool about this person. Yeah. And what Polani helps us see is, well, what you're doing is you're offering clues that you're inviting somebody subsidiarily. To, to indwell and it's only as people indwell them some subsidiarily that the reality would start to come to be uh, uh apprehended yeah yeah and okay. the, the, the bible's the same way i mean mm-hmm. don't worship the bible hmm. what it is 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 uh what that is the kind of the authoritative what you indwell subsidiarily in yeah. order to be kind of lined up <laughs> so yeah. you can, so that you can see him yeah i'm i'm uh i'm thinking about the the breakdown in in communication and subsidiary uh, uh knowledge here where if someone were describing my wife julie in a in a in a way that's uh, inadequate or yeah inadequate let's say that and and someone else the, the person who's getting the description comes to dislike my wife because they don't like the description. Um, what is there? Is there a word for that type of breakdown where the, the, the they're not able to like Im, embody uh, the description of my wife as she really is, as she is in reality, because the description is not accurate. It's like a, a faulty bridge. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm getting. I'm I'm sort of halfway tracking. Can well, you- so when yeah so when you when you um you said you invite people to like into your body when you give a lecture a, yeah. a philosophy lecture if if you if you um if you were sick one day and uh you you weren't up quite up to the task and and your your brain was all foggy and stuff um it seems like there'd be like static in the communication they wouldn't yeah. be able to indwell in the way that you uh need them to because of the faulty communication um does does Polanyi does does he deal with like that kind of breakdown in communication and um you know indwelling or does that have more to do with your advancement of him and then if if so what do you make of that that's a good question i probably ought to go back and reread everything that polani said again hmm. uh th- th- there's some amazing things in personal knowledge as you've noted mm-hmm. but i um one thing i argue in longing to know and this would be me, mm-hmm. hopefully being true to Polani. Okay. Um, is, oh, maybe it's not longing to know. Well, I don't, I, I don't know. I can yeah. think of different conversations or passages, but 
Uh, the nice thing about subsidiary focal integration from a teacher's point of, what, uh, of view, this is like um, very forgiving. It is, there is no necessary minimal set of subsidiaries. Okay. It's not like you have an exact, you've got to have these 10. Uh-huh. You know, it could be that you have a cluster of them and you, and whatever cluster you have, you really do rely on the student to climb into them uh, because for the, the reason of, of the wrestlers who can't teach about wrestling, there's you do rely on the student to get on board. Right. You just can't ride the bike for the kid. Yeah. So, but you you can be flawed as a teacher. And that this is has been my comfort for years because I always stumble over my wor- words. I am hardly an expert on anything Hmm. and but i you know what i've got i could bottle excitement and sell it (laughs) i love that i'm a very excitable person Hmm. and so i feel like the excitement has helped my students say okay gonna do it (laughs) (laughs) and jump in and so all my classes like i've read books that are too hard for me with my students and I've said, here's the deep end, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and so my whole performance has been flawed, mm. but somehow it's, you know, some things have come out. Now, can I have misled some people? Absolutely. And as you can imagine, thinking, let's just switch over and talk about John Frame. Mm-hmm. A lot of people got it wrong when he started talking about the normative. Mm. They, they took him to be... Um, not orthodox yeah. it's another reason to be in philosophy <laughs> really <laughs> you know because not as much at stake yeah there's some cruelty that goes on in the name of exactitude mm-hmm. you know what i'm talking about yeah mm-hmm. so so that would be an example okay of, of uh, uh something that was a stumbling block but i don't think that was frame's fault yeah you know, I think that what, but that was just like a real hang up for certain people. Yeah. So, so we've talked, well, yeah, that helps. Um, so you can be flawed as a, as a teacher and you can uh, make up for it with, with uh, various other aspects to, to still welcome people in. Can you be, can you, you be flawed as a student? Um, I can imagine, um, because there's so much uh, attitude, there's so much that it's important uh, in, in the covenantal epistemology. If you were super reluctant, just, you know, just dragging your heels, unwilling to be a good student. I get that. That one makes sense. Are there, how about like cognitive uh, limitations and, and, and such? Well, one I've thought about a lot is abuse. Mm. You know, you know, there's so many young students who have had, you know, had to struggle with abuse because that's part of the legacy of modernity is, you know, abuse of control. Yeah. Of course, it's also the legacy of sin, but you know, people show up as 18 year olds in a class. I I remember once, I can't remember her name, but she was in my logic class. And I, I had, I used the last unit on philosophical awareness. I had them read little manual for knowing where I actually do mention, if you've been in an abusive situation, you are in no way ready for a knowing venture. You know, that doesn't start out with you taking care of the abusive thing, getting over the abuse. And she came unglued. 
she couldn't finish the course wow. because that was so true of her. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's not quite what you're asking, but I, but anyway, I, I think it's to the point of something that you said there. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. There's, it's, it's not just on the teacher side and it's not just a, on right. the student side and there can be. The other thing is it takes time. So I've, you know, in recent years, I've been trying to learn what I never got taught, which is classical Christian metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't feel like I've learned it until I can indwell it as my own. And it's taking years. Hmm. I, th I think if I'd gotten it starting in the cradle, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, but, but I have read and reread and reread the same books and the same passages. And I, it's just trying to, you know, the, first I got to get to the place where I can say what somebody says. Yeah. But it's yet another thing to get to the place where I can feel like I've indwelled it. Do you think that it's it's difficult to learn classical Christian metaphysics because um, the way you've been taught has led you to indwell a different metaphysic that is you have to unlearn? Or is it because um, it's been so long uh, since you've had to think about those type of things? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Are you already in a different location or is it you're, you're more um, starting out, I guess? I think I'm starting out, but partly because I've spent my whole life on the epistemological questions. Sure, sure. Remember, one of your first questions was why epistemology? Well, yeah. there was no other thing for a modern, uh, a philosophically attuned person in modernity because epistemology is all you're allowed to do. Right. You're not allowed to do metaphysics. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I had to earn the right by at least responsibly addressing my own epistemological questions, mm -hmm. which I did in those four books. So, you know, longing to know, loving to know little manual and finally contact with reality is my old dissertation updated. Um, but I finally feel now that I have done that well enough that I don't have to be stuck in the epistemological hmm. question and I can think about the real. And what, you know, the amazing segue for me is um, starting in 2014, starting to read um, in particular D.C. Schindler hmm. and realizing that his work was profoundly resonating with my, with my own covenant epistemology. Huh. And so I felt like I had taken the test and gotten an A. Yeah. And now somebody was giving me the textbook. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Which yeah. feels like, you know, the heavens opened. Yeah. But I've got to, and you know, to get to the point where I can write that for ordinary people, which is what I always feel is my shtick mm -hmm. to do is a trick. Yeah. I'm trying, but that's kind of why it's been so hard for me recently to, to write. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, I wanted to, to jump back uh, uh, before we let you into graduate on to metaphysics, uh, just a little bit more on epistemology. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated and interested by Polyani's, uh, uh, his the, the role he gives to intuition. And, um, and you make this comparison a little bit with, um, with uh, Peirce's abduction. And um, I, I'm just not clear. And I don't think I read that part. Um, <laughs> yeah, if I did that, it's because somebody made me do it. I okay. can't remember anything about purse. But okay. my colleague, uh, 
my Polani colleague, Phil Mullins, is the purse guy. Okay. We'd have to go after him. <laughs> okay. Um, well, how about how about just like the, the role of intuition in in um, in moving from point A to point B uh, in these in these subsidiaries? What 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 is intuition doing for us? Yeah, that's good. Well, you have to always whoever you're talking to, you got to define what right. intuition is. So and uh, Polani has an essay called The Creative Imagination. Mm. Where he distinguishes between intuition and imagination, and so if you're on the track of a discovery, <clears throat> a knowing venture, um, you have a sense of the half-hidden pattern that you're moving toward. Okay, that would be intuition. Now, what imagination would be would be the creative subsidiary subsidiary scrabbling or ransacking that you do subsidiarily to try to make it to the the goal and and you navigate because you have this what he called the sense of increasing proximity to the solution yeah so you can actually have a sense that you're getting closer to it that's intuition yeah i it's so hard because i know that's true i've had that situation before and i think usually in math in math class because i'm like so desperate because i wasn't very good at math but I, I knew there's something here if i just stick with it um and that's where i it's it's burned in my head because of all the stress but how is it that we have those kind of it's like a magical gift that we could I'm on the trail. I'm on it. And some people have different gifts for different, you know, they're crime solvers and they're on the scent of yeah. the. Yeah, you do calling in yeah. terms of what make what people's loves are and what what they see that other people don't see. And oh, yeah. yeah, is yeah. that is it um, it's kind of the nature and nurture question, I guess. But um, is it is it like did you. This is maybe just opinion, but do, do you think God wired us for different things, um, and yes. that's why we they come intuitively? Or do you think <laughs> can can I grow? Can I grow to make myself love something I don't love? Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. And there, you want to follow your authoritative guides. So, mm. in your life, there's maybe two or three people that you should accredit that actually know you better than you do. Interesting. And they might say, and actually, if you can think of yourself back as a 16 year old, <laughs> yeah. you know, you might there like there might have been a wrestling co coach who knew about you, something that you didn't know about yourself. Yeah. You know, and you would do well to follow his guidance. And, you know, when you go off to college, the whole reason for a core curriculum is that some people wiser than you think you need this. Mm hmm. And so you're submitting to authoritative guides. You're not getting those things out of the way. I always, always corrected everybody's lingo, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but they're, they're part of your humanness. And so I really think the job of colleges is to cultivate lovers of the real. Mm -hmm. So, and, 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 I would like to add, because now I'm talking about a metaphysics of childhood. Hmm. What we need to do is not uncultivate the love the children are born with. Yeah. I, I hear that a lot from philosophers, which it, it always makes me appreciate it. But but people, you know, a lot of philosophers will say, um, I had this question about my highlighter. And what if my highlighter uh, yellow is actually your purple? And they just stuck with it. And, and a lot of us think of that when we're kids. Um, but it gets beaten out of us or it gets, you know, smashed out of us or it's not, it's not going to make us a bunch of money. So we, we drop that. 
But I, I think what you're saying is is totally right there. Like let let the little philosophers continue to be philosophers and give them training yes. and encouragement along the way to, to that this is a noble pursuit, that this is good, that this will get you closer to reality, and that's actually worthwhile. Well, and I would say it is the thing we're made for. We yeah. are made to be lovers of the real. Yeah. We're yeah. born lovers of the real. We're called to it. We're made to it. That's communion with the real is what we're made for. Yeah. And that's what make us makes us happy. Yeah. Um, so I want... all these years, I mean, why was my skeptical problem a real problem? Because I was made to love the real. Yeah. And I couldn't trust the real. And I think modernity is laced with distrust of the real, which hmm. is what, and you can add in there the word acedia. You know what that means, acedia? So it's one of the seven deadly sins. And Joseph Pieper, philosopher, de, de, uh, defines it as refusal to consent hmm. to the being. And so really, you know, every human being lives out a yes or a no. Uh-huh. You know, the Joker in Batman, that's a no. Yeah. <laughs> right? Willed loneliness. But uh, but uh, you, you have to posture a consent to the real. But mm-hmm. modernity, arguably, is one big no to the real. Yeah. So it's like endemically a rejection of the real. It's an anti-realist. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so no wonder I had the problems I did. I mean, th- there's something appalling about a 13 year old being a skeptic. <laughs> and the and it's kind of interesting. I've thought about this, too. It wasn't till I was 13 that I was a skeptic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, presumably there was a childhood of loving the real before I started to have those questions. Yeah. And then you snapped into a different place where now you don't know if you can trust. Which you might blame on modernist, epistemologically tainted educational yeah. practices. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I want to I anticipate one, one potential modernist uh, objection from the, from the audience where if, if um, Pugliani and, and you following him are saying, um, we, we talked about this at the beginning, but epistemology should focus not on accounting for knowledge that we already have, um, uh, but in coming to know. We, we need to focus on that. So I can imagine a situation where someone says, I picked the, these lottery numbers because um, I, I had this intuition that they were going to be right. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't explain how I knew it, but but I knew it. And then tomorrow it comes true and I did win the lottery. I think most epistemologists are following, especially justified true belief, where we're going to say, look, that's like a Gettier case or something. You, you you weren't actually justified in that. Yes, it was a true belief, but it didn't count as knowledge because you, you weren't justified in that. But if they pull, like, if they abuse Pugliani's system and say, it's an intuition, and I, I want to talk about how I came to know that instead of trying to justify that I knew it. Well, what, what, what do you make of that? Is that a problem? <laughs> Well, Polanyi would say anybody that reasons that way doesn't come near a science lab. Yeah. Okay. You know, you want you want to be a scientist, you got to do better than that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for one thing, you got to entrust yourself to science as a vision of reality. That was one thing he said. But then you got to have years and years of training. There's a great paragraph and I guess it's in tacit dimension where he says, you know, this verification thing. 
Hmm. Nobody would ever let you in a lab. And if they did let you in the lab, you'd break the instruments. And yeah. if you managed not to break the instrument, you know, you wouldn't know how to work it. And, and if you could figure out how to work it and you got some data, nobody would believe it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. So, so it's not, it's, it's trusting science, but it's not trusting the, the verificationist, the, the right. uh, logical positivist That's conception right. or bastardization of science. And because the thing is in the moment of discovery, what, how you know you've made contact with discovery is not confirmation. It's hope of confirmation. So, you know, it's your in, unspecifiable sense mm-hmm. that, that uh, there are indeterminate future possibilities. There's, there is uh, inarticulability of, all over that. And, yeah. you know, after that, you might spend the r- whole rest of your years trying to confirm it. But in the moment of discovery, all you have is that unspecifiable sense mm. possibilities. My favorite old movie, Hunt for Red October. Hmm. Uh, where, are you familiar with it? I am. I, I was a child when I saw it, so okay. I, I can't well, go into Yeah. There's the holy shit moment, pardon my, my <laughs> where he realizes that Ramius is not trying to start World War III. He's trying to defect and bring the submarine with him. Okay. Well, that's maybe 30 minutes into the film. The whole rest of the film is his trying to prove that that's right. Okay. But the moment of discovery, which happens in the briefing room when he's supposed to be briefing all these guys that think World War Three is getting started. Yeah. It's it's really fascinating. And it's really this this whole the whole the whole model that you've developed in Pogliani, it's it's. It is a bit of a paradigm shift, though that's uh, some loaded uh, language from from Kuhn. But it's it's a different way of thinking, and it's a really good way. And I think that um, it, it is challenging if you've been uh, inoculated so deeply by by modernity. Uh, but I think that it is, it is representative of philosophy uh, as it used to be done in the schools. Uh, you know, following Plato, following Aristotle. I don't think that it was all just a popular liberal philosophy because. Like Plato said, if you don't know geometry, you can't even enter into my thing. So it was high level, but it also was a, a way of being. They they dressed the same. You could see the philosophers. You you knew their haircut. You knew the togas they wore. Like it was I this way of being. Were like. <laughs> yeah, I wonder too. <laughs> That's fantastic. So I, I I appreciate what you've done, and I appreciate you also. You know, following uh, Pogliani and and swimming against the stream i guess swimming uh in a a different way and just being confident enough to say look i'm gonna run with this i'm gonna show my work along the way but i I don't i don't care if this is different i want it to be (laughs) well you know it's the trump card because you can't help but do it Mm. you know there is no other way to ride a bike yeah you know i in i'm from pittsburgh we've been in love with ben roethlisberger the quarterback who is now you know going to the happy hunting ground, but, uh, you know, explicit knowledge is Ben Roethlisberger standing on the 50 yard line, reading the playbook. Hmm. That's not what we paid him to do. Right. <laughs> what we, I mean, what you see in every football game is subsidiary focal integration. Yeah. And he was an artiste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Throwing a football is a really good one. Throwing a baseball throwing those it's amazing anything any field any field yeah 
Yeah. Well, Dr. Meek, this has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for, for your time. Thank you for, for the books as well. Um, I need to jump in on uh, Longington now, I think, and, and uh, dive in a little bit deeper. For, for, the, uh, for the audience one more time, the books that we were discussing today were uh, a Loving to Know. It's a covenantal epistemology. Contact with Reality, which is Dr. Meek's um, uh, dissertation, the first half, I think, and then uh, updated the, the rest, and the whole thing's been updated. And then uh, we mentioned uh, Tacit Knowledge by Pogliani. Um, I have this knowing and being. I haven't jumped in on this one yet. I'm, oh, knowing, I'm scared. To, knowing and being are his essays collected by Marjorie Green, and that critical introduction of hers, three or so pages, expert. Okay. That's okay, great. I'm going to jump in on that. And then um, uh, uh, a really big one. I, I haven't jumped in on the study of man yet, but uh, I heard it's I heard it's really good. And uh, personal knowledge is like the big one that yeah. I've tried a few times. I, I was a little bit scared. I, I had to read your works first so I can kind of have an understanding, at least yeah. some, oh. some hooks to hang stuff on. It's a lot beyond me, but hey, that never stopped me. It's a good <laughs> thing because I wouldn't have gotten anywhere. Let yeah. me also mention a couple other things. One mm-hmm. is, there's a Polani society mm-hmm. that uh, anybody's welcome to in Polanian conviv- convivial style. Yeah. And uh, there's resources there, Polani's, some of his essays and lectures and stuff. And and then also my website is Esther yeah. Lightcap Meek. And I try to keep that updated. You can subscribe for my monthly newsletter or whatever podcast like this. Yeah. When you send me the link, I'll po- post it there. That awesome. kind of thing. So. Okay, fantastic, and I'll put I'll put a link to uh, to your website in the description, so folks, you can find that right here, wherever you're getting this podcast at. Um, Doctor Meek, thanks so much for for all your time, for all your work, thanks for helping me you. think through this. Yeah, it's been awesome, uh, folks. That's gonna have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.